Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to everybody. I want to say a particular welcome to uh, those who may be visiting with us for the first time. Uh, we've got family members and friends coming to uh, see those who are being baptized this morning, and we are glad you're here uh, with us. Welcome. It's a kind of lousy day today outside, but we've got some great things happening this morning because we have the privilege of sharing together two ordinances that God has uh, created for His church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are sometimes referred to as ordinances because they are rites, that's R-I-T-E-S, rites that Jesus has ordained for His church to observe until He returns. And so we have the great privilege of uh, of, of viewing the baptisms of three uh, three ladies from our student ministry. We had a couple of guys in the previous service. We didn't split it up. Guys and girls on purpose. That's just how it happened. Uh, but we got three ladies who are going to be uh, professing their faith in Jesus by being baptized in just a few moments. But to begin, I'd like to share a few thoughts with you on baptism. And I'd like to do that from Acts 8. So if you've got a Bible with you, go with me to Acts 8. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are that are in the chair racks uh, underneath the chairs in front of you. So you can grab one of those if you want. And if you don't know where to find stuff in the Bible because this is kind of new to you, that's okay. You can find Acts chapter 8 on page 916 of the Bibles that are in the chair racks there. There are a lot of facets to the Bible's teaching on baptism. There is so much that could be said about the nature of baptism, the purpose of baptism, and all sorts of things. But I'd like to, to guide our thinking this morning in talking about baptism by just drawing a few principles from something that happened in Acts chapter 8. And what I want to do is just very briefly bring you up to speed on what's happened in Acts so far, if you're not familiar with it. And at the beginning of Acts... Jesus' disciples are, are holed up in Jerusalem waiting to carry out the mission that Jesus has given them. And they're waiting because Jesus has told them that they're not to move forward with this until the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them. And so, we're, if you're familiar with this, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on these believers who are waiting. This is the Spirit of Jesus who is going to aid them and help them in this mission. There's all kinds of amazing things happen, and one of the byproducts of all this stuff happening is that literally thousands of people are turning in faith to Christ. Thousands of people are professing faith in Jesus. Thousands of people are becoming Christians. As this Christian movement gains momentum there in Jerusalem, something else happens along with it, because as, as, as more and more people become Christians, the opposition to Christianity begins to increase. The persecution of those Christians begins to ramp up. And so by Acts chapter 6, we see uh, a man by the name of Stephen uh, preach a message as he's taken captive, and then he's publicly stoned to death. He's, he's a martyr for the cause of Christ. And then we jump into chapter 7, and, and uh, we know it was Paul, but Saul begins persecuting the church uh, as, it, within it, everything that he can reach. He's throwing people in jail, he's trying to have them 
put to death. And so things are heating up, and that has the, the effect of pushing the believers out from Jerusalem. So as, as these new Christians are, are fleeing Jerusalem, they're going to the surrounding villages and towns and cities and regions. But they're not going quietly into these surrounding regions. They're actually preaching the gospel. They're taking the good news of Jesus with them as they go. And Acts 8 tells us about a man named Philip. We first met Philip in Acts uh, uh, chapter 6, I believe, where he is selected as one of the people that this group of people became deacons, we think, but he's selected to care for the widows who were accidentally being neglected in the care of the church. And so they pick seven people, and Philip is among them to do this. And all we really know about that is, is just his name is, re is reported to us. But in Acts chapter 8, we encounter Philip again. And this time, Philip has, has spread, he's in the region of Samaria, and as, as persecution has occurred, and we find him preaching the good news about Jesus. So if you're in Acts chapter 8, look down at verse 4. Verse 4, because we want to see what Philip does here. It says in verse 4 of Acts 8, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs, or when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There are two things that we see happening here in this region. The first thing is that the gospel of Jesus is being proclaimed. The good news about Jesus is, is being proclaimed. And on the other side of the coin, there, is, there are signs and wonders attached to that proclamation of the gospel. Miraculous things are happening. And so the Bible tells us that we've got people who are possessed by demons are being liberated from that possession. And we're seeing people who are, are paralyzed, people who are lame, are, are being miraculously healed. And when we talk about miraculous healings here, we're not talking about the miraculous so-called healings that happen at Benny Hinn Crusades, where somebody has some sort of nondescript pain in their back that... Uh, they, they, they get the spirit zapped at them from Benny, they fall over, they stand up again, and that pain is gone. We're not talking about stuff like that. The, the miracles that, that take place in the book of Acts are real miracles. There are people who, some of whom have been paralyzed from birth. People that are well known with these physical maladies in their communities being miraculously healed where everyone can see. Yeah, that was a person who's never walked and now they've come in connection with the power of Jesus and they're walking now. They're, they're actually fully and finally healed. And no wonder the city is filled with joy. People are being liberated from their sins. They're coming to faith in Jesus 
And they're also experiencing liberation from demonic oppression. They're experiencing liberation from physical problems that they have experienced for many years in some cases. So no wonder the city is filled with great joy. But there's a guy in the city that the next verses tell us about. His name is Simon. And Simon is Samaria's pen and teller. He's Samaria's Siegfried and Roy. He is a magician, the Bible tells us. But not as an act. Not an illusionist. But he's a real magician in the city. And he has a following. And there are people that look to him. He's revered in that area. And as Philip is preaching, something happens. Look at verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So if we're reading along this in the natural flow, we've never read this story before, and this is the first time we're encountering it, we're seeing what's going on about the gospel being preached, and people coming to Christ and being delivered, then we're hearing about this guy named Simon, and we're seeing that people seem to be pulled away from Simon, we're asking ourselves the question, how's he going to respond to this? Is this something that he's going to fight? The Bible tells us the answer to that in verse 13. If you're looking there in chapter, Acts chapter 8, it says in verse 13, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we see Simon professing faith in Jesus, himself being baptized, and it seems like he is following the teachings of Philip in the other apostles. But a problem comes up. Beginning in verse 18. The Bible then goes on to say this. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You see, after, uh, after an amount of time, Simon's true colors start shining through. And Simon basically reaches the point where he's thinking, hey, maybe I can add this to the act. Maybe I can buy this power. I'm seeing what the, the apostles can do. Maybe if I offer them enough cash, I can, I can do that with them. And... Bible tells us that Peter says to him ever so gently, <laughs> you can die on your money. My paraphrase. Because what Simon is, has asked for here is, is so out of step with the gospel. What Simon wants is, is so egregious 
so misunderstanding of what's going on. Uh, uh, Philip and, and Peter and these other apostles are not, are not peddling magic tricks around to create a following for themselves. These are the signs and wonders that attest the risen Jesus. This is not something to play with. So he is rebuked in the strongest possible terms, called upon to repent. The next verses tell us that that Simon asks Peter to pray for him, that none of these things actually happen. That's the the story that I wanted to to set up for you from Acts chapter 8. But what I really want to do is I want to talk about baptism, remember? And I want to mention for you three principles that are, that, that are, I believe, legitimately drawn from this story that are in accord with what the rest of the Bible would have to teach us about baptism. Three principles I want to highlight about baptism that I think are in sync with the rest of the Bible's teaching. Here's the first one. Number one, baptism is for those who have professed faith in Christ. If we're asking ourselves the question, well, who ought to be baptized? If you're sitting in your seat thinking, huh, I've never been baptized, I wonder if this is something I ought to give a whirl. Here's your answer. Baptism is for those who have professed, not the best choice of terms, Uh, baptism is for those who have professed faith in Jesus. And we see in this passage that baptism is the visible response of faith. Right? Baptism is the visible response of faith. Verse 12, these people have believed what has been preached, the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Those who have believed that respond in faith, and then that faith is made visible, visible through this outward response of baptism. Baptism is for those who have believed. And the question that we ought to be asking next then is, well, what must be believed? What's the, what's the content uh, that we're supposed to be believing? The way our text puts it, which we want to expand on just a little bit, the way our text puts it is, is the, the coming kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. And, and it refers to this as Good news. And that's what the word gospel means. If you've ever heard the word gospel before, the word gospel simply means good news. So what is this good news that must be believed? Well, the first piece of it begins with a a proper self-understanding. One of the things that, that we must all come to terms with is the fact that the Bible tells us that every single one of us, without exception are sinners. Amen. Here's what that doesn't mean. Because that sounds insulting to us. <laughs> Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we never do anything good. You Amen. probably helped an old lady across the street before. Filed your taxes at reasonably the right amount of time. <laughs> hey, we do good things. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could possibly be. Amen. Praise God yes. that we're not all as bad as we could possibly be because we would be insufferable. Praise God. Praise God that we're not as bad as we could possibly be. But what it does mean 
is the Bible does tell us that all of us, without exception, have sinned. That is, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of God's righteous standard. When we think about the status of our souls before God, we may be reasonably decent people, but in God's eyes, because of His transcendent, majestic, perfect holiness, we are sinners. We have transgressed God's law and God's ways in word and thought and motivation and deed. All of us without exception. The Bible tells us that everyone who wears the label sinner, and that's all of us, tells us that the wages of our sin is death. The paycheck for our sin is death. And that death comes to us in a couple of different ways. We experience the day-by-day -day experience of, uh, of, of death as we live in a broken world, broken by other people's sin and their own sin. We die a thousand deaths because of the sin that we and others have committed. But the Bible also tells us that there's another aspect of this death. It is eternal spiritual death and separation from God. And the Bible tells us that that apart from a work of God, all of us are condemned, destined for a place that the Bible refers to as a real place, hell. You said, what about the good news part? Because <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about that. But here's the thing. You and I have to have a context for the good news. If you don't have a proper sense of yourself before your Creator, the good news is just, eh, okay. The good news isn't going to become good, uh, good news to you unless you feel in the deepest parts of your soul a desperation because of your, the, sta your, the state of your soul before God. But let's talk about the good news. The good news is that though God would have been fully within his rights to leave us in our sins, he has not done that. In fact, God the Father has sent God the Son to be the Savior of this world. The Bible tells us that the Son was sent into the world to live a righteous life in contrast to the one that we have failed to live. And when we see Jesus Christ nailed to the cross and bleeding out, what he is doing is bearing on his own shoulders the weight and punishment of our sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus was really and truly dead and laid to rest in a tomb. He resurrected, he rose from the dead three days later in triumph over sin and death, which means anybody who feels the weight of their sin the brokenness of their relationship with their Creator can be forgiven and redeemed and restored and renewed. We can experience uh, the weight of our sin being taken off of our shoulders, a proper union with the God who made us in the hope of the future when, when everything paralyzed and broken and lame is made new. No wonder the city was filled with great joy. Don't forget that. The gospel gets kind of boring to us sometimes, and it shouldn't. It becomes the same thing we've heard over and over again. 
when it ought to refresh us with the great joy yeah. that God would reach to us in that kind of mercy. Baptism is for those who have professed faith in that good news of what Jesus has done. The second principle that I want to pull from this story is this. Baptism is not a guarantee of saving faith. Baptism is not a guarantee of saving faith. Receiving, this is important, especially for those of us who may not be familiar with some of this stuff. It's important for us to recognize and, and note that receiving the rite of baptism does not in and of itself save a person. Baptism is beautiful, meaningful, significant, important, commanded. There are so many wonderful things about it and important things. It is a command of Jesus to do, but baptism in and of itself does not save. Jesus saves. That's important for us to remember. We are witnesses in baptism of a person who has professed faith in Christ and is, is in essence telling us what Romans 6 says, that the old them is, has died and the new one is being raised to walk in newness of life. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Baptism is the response of those who profess faith in Christ, but it is not a guarantee. And we can see that from Simon, right? Simon professes faith in Christ. Simon is baptized, and yet time tells that Simon's profession of faith is not genuine. His, his experience of the right of the ordinance of baptism is not necessarily accompanied by saving faith. Baptism is not a guarantee of saving faith. But there's a third principle I want to share with you from this passage of Scripture before we, we participate in these baptisms this morning. That's this. It's one of my favorites. One that's here. Baptism is an expression of a new allegiance. Baptism is an expression of a new allegiance. Simon, in the passage of scripture that we just read, was not merely an entertainer. He was a person who had a following. I want you to look at this again. If you're there in Acts chapter 8, look again at verse 9. Verse 9 says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This guy is not a one-trick wonder. This is a guy that has a following. If you were to, if you were to do a poll of the people in the region of Samaria and say, you know, who, who's really representative of somebody that's really harnessed the power of God? They'd be like, well, Simon. I mean, for years... Simon's able to do all of these things that, that we can't explain. But the Bible tells us this in verse 12, which we read already, but when they, these, these people that are amazed at his magic, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. That, friends, is an expression of a new allegiance. 
That's what happens in conversion. When a person is truly rescued from their sin, we are expressing that we are now on Team Jesus. The, the old jersey's off, the new colors are on, and our allegiance is in a new direction. Now, this allegiance in a new direction is not something that we can do perfectly, is it? None of the, 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 the two previous uh, students who were baptized this morning in the first service or the three students who are going to be baptized. Now, in entering the waters of baptism, this is not a guarantee that they're going to follow Jesus perfectly for the rest of their lives. Who of us could make that promise? They're not being asked to make that promise. They are declaring to us that they have a new allegiance in their lives. That they want to follow the risen all of us get to watch that happen and say, Amen. Amen.